Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. For nearly 30 years, women in the Mexican border city of Juarez have been disappearing, many of them turning up dead in mass graves. We don't know who the killers are, very few have been charged, and fewer convicted. My guests this week are Oz Valishan and Monica Ortiz Uribe, hosts of the amazing podcast Forgotten, The Women of Juarez, the final episode to which is now available. They are incredible journalists with an infuriating story to tell. If you've ever been to Juarez, disposing of bodies is real easy. You don't have to dig through hard dirt. You're digging through sand. Just across the bridge from El Paso, Texas, hundreds of young women have been turning up dead in Juarez, Mexico. Many are discovered in mass graves. Some have strange symbols carved on their bodies. Some have their hands bound with shoelaces. And everyone from the families of the victims to the United States FBI has tried to uncover who is behind these crimes. But one thing is clear. The crimes are connected. They were not just random victims. The women were picked. They were selected. I mean, there could be an abduction in broad daylight. No one saw it. No one talked about it. These were like ghosts. The numbers started to rise, and then a lot of theories were floated up. The gangs, the serial murder, the cartels, organ traffickers, the possibility of some sort of strange devil worship. It's been 15 years since I first heard about these murders, and I've been haunted ever since. How is it possible these crimes remain unsolved? On our journey to find out, we talk to victims' families, FBI agents, and a psychologist who claims to know one of the culprits. We visit the site of one of the mass graves and travel to a dangerous part of downtown Juarez, where many of the women disappeared. Hi, I'm Oz Veloshin. I'm one of the hosts of Forgotten Women of Juarez. The podcast explores what happens when journalists become targets and when the judiciary is compromised. I'm fighting for robust institutions and freedom of speech. Sorry, not sorry. I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe, co-host of the podcast Forgotten, The Women of Juarez. I believe workers everywhere should earn a fair wage and women ought to live free from violence. Not sorry, period. I want to give the listeners some backstory on what's happening in Juarez, how many women have gone missing and the crimes not being even really investigated by authorities, and then go into why you felt it was important to do the podcast. I first started working on this podcast after several trips to the Texas-Mexico border, specifically El Paso in Texas and Juarez in Mexico. And it took me several trips before I learned something that everybody in the region knows, which is that since the early 1990s, hundreds of women have turned up dead in Juarez. And many of them met incredibly brutal fates, which was evident from their bodies when they were discovered. 
There have been five mass graves of women discovered in Juarez since 1995. And yet all of this was happening right across the border from one of America's safest cities, a prosperous suburban Texan city. And so I was just very curious, how could this be happening? How could the crimes not be solved? And it ended up being this journey with Monica that opened up all kinds of other questions, particularly when I learned things like the FBI had tried to solve the crimes not once, not twice, but three times. Well, when the mass grave was discovered and the suspects confessed, Hardrick Crawford was the FBI special agent in charge of El Paso. His office was just a few miles away from the site of the mass grave, and he'd taken a special interest in the murders of women in Juarez and was following this case closely as a potential breakthrough. You could sense that the pressure was mounting. Political pressure, public pressure, international pressure. The families and relatives and friends of the disappeared women, they were loud. Those women would hold marches, mourning the deaths and drawing attention to that. That was huge. There was all kinds of attention from the international press, people like Jennifer Lopez, uh, Eve Ensler got involved. And yet these crimes remained stubbornly unsolved. It wasn't clear who was killing these hundreds of women and why. And it was a story of vulnerability, but also a story of the deep paradox and irony of the border that many of these women were working in factories which were American-owned, could see across the border into El Paso, a city of, of relative safety, I mean, of enormous safety by comparison, and that El Pasoans could see back into Juarez. Many of them had relatives there. Many of them, you know, had friends there. And yet there was this seeming inability to do anything. And that struck me as something which was I had to know more about. I'm very grateful to Oz for having taken up this story, for having uh, pitched it, because my entry into this story was out of uh, personal obligation. I was one of those El Pasoans who looked out into Juarez and saw these neighborhoods and, and felt this in- enormous, oh, how, how could I say? Well, just, just an enormous responsibility that these, these are my neighbors, these are my sisters, I could have been one of them. And I took it up as a reporter, individual story by story. And by the time Oz had come to me proposing this podcast, the emotional toll that these stories had had taken on me had pretty much had me spent. And I don't see how I personally would have pitched this this project because I've just the, the impossibility of it, the hopelessness of it. I don't know if I could have bared it alone. And so I'm very grateful that, yeah, yeah, that it took the combination of, of an outsider and an insider to tell the story. And I think that if we, in, in just our everyday, in our everyday lives, if we consider the point of view of someone else, if we collaborate the outsiders and the insiders, mm-hmm. I think we'll all be so much better off. We'll have so much, uh, a, a so much richer understanding of uh, not only our own lives, but, um, but others as well. Well well said, Monica. It was very humbling the the trust you put in me. And I mean, I certainly say you couldn't have, you wouldn't have done this story without me. I certainly couldn't have done it, uh, even begun to do it without you. So thank you. 
To give you an overview on the subject that we're covering in Juarez, beginning in the early 90s, women started to go missing in Ciudad Juarez. And this is the sister city across from my hometown, El Paso, Texas. And many of them would vanish from the heart of downtown Juarez. Some were even seen just within a few blocks of each other. Others were last seen leaving their factory jobs that they had at these many foreign-owned factories that exist in Juarez. And after a few weeks, sometimes months, their bodies would turn up in vacant lots, patches of desert, or on the foot of a mountainside in the outskirts of the city. Their bodies would bear these horrific signs of torture and rape. I mean, to give you some examples, some horrible examples, some had a nipple bitten off, some had a breast severed, some had their hands tied with shoelaces, others were left half naked, some with their legs spread open, one had a triangle carved on her back. I mean, just truly unspeakable, unthinkable brutality, the likes of which people in Juarez had never seen before. Who are these women? What were their lives like? Well, just as disturbing as the murders themselves was the fact that there was a clear pattern behind the murders. And these women who were being murdered in Ciudad Juarez, they all came from poor families. Many of them were immigrants who came from other parts of Mexico. They were students, they worked in shops downtown, or they were assembly line workers at, again, these many foreign-owned factories that exist in Juarez. Many of them, they even looked the same. Often they were pretty and slim with long, dark hair. And it's their poverty that made them vulnerable. To get around the city, they often had to travel in city buses, public buses. And sometimes they'd go alone. Sometimes they'd have to wake up before dawn to go to work. Or sometimes they'd be arriving home after dark. And they lived in these outlying squatter communities where there was little to no street lighting. Also on Sandra's wall is a map of the city. And we pointed out the part of downtown Juarez where we just come from. What's that street? Mina. Mina. That's where the camiones, the buses stop. And that's where a lot of the girls were seen for the last time. We were right there. Yep, yep. That's a very, very, very dangerous place of the city. I wouldn't recommend you guys to go back. Yeah. Oh, that's certainly a Song where they have lookouts. That's how they control the area through intimidation. Can you just describe a little bit what the culture is like at the border? The culture at the border, I mean, it's reflective in someone who's from the border, like me. The border is a place where two countries, two cultures, two people, two languages come together in a way that one side bleeds into the other, and that we are a combination of both sides, of both Mexico and in the U.S. And so... Whether it's in Juarez or in El Paso, you could walk into the grocery store or walk over to your neighbor's house and start a sentence in English and end it in Spanish and nobody bats an eye. We take a Thanksgiving turkey over to my grandmother's hometown in Mexico and celebrate Thanksgiving there. And in El Paso, we'll celebrate Mexican Independence Day and the 4th of July. So that kind of gives you a sense. There's really a story for me which crystallized 
some of the paradoxes and brutalities of the border. And it was an interesting story for me because despite not fitting the typical profile of what people think of when they think of an immigrant to the US, that's exactly what I am. And so I, I'd kind of been conscious of what it was like to be an immigrant, even though I come from a very male British privileged background, that sense of being helpless in the face of the bureaucratic administrative state about when visas are issued, do you have to go to the secondary inspection area? Can you leave the country when it's your cousin's wedding or your aunt's funeral? Or do you have to stay because you don't want to lose your status? I had a, I wouldn't say privilege, but I had a, an insight into what that world was, even though most people who wear my shoes don't. In my business, having straight teeth is so important. And for me, that meant making sure my teeth were perfectly straight with Candid. If you're unhappy with your smile or self-conscious in photos, you have to check them out. They deliver clear aligners right to you and straighten your teeth for 65% less than braces. And the best part? They are totally invisible. You can transform your smile without anyone noticing a thing. And you never have to set foot in a doctor's office or a waiting room. Your treatment is prescribed remotely by a licensed orthodontist. And Candid delivers everything you need right to your door. Unlike other companies, Candid only works with your orthodontists, never general dentists. That means your treatment will be designed by an expert in tooth movement with 20 years of experience on average. Looking ahead to a wedding season or a special event? With Candid, the average treatment length is just six months, and you'll start seeing results way before then. Learn more about Candid's process and get a complimentary 3D scan of your teeth at a Candid studio near you. It's the simplest, freest way to get started. Are you ready to take the first step towards straighter teeth? For a limited time, you could get started with $75 off by using code SORRY at CandidCo.com slash SORRY. That's CandidCo.com slash SORRY. Use code SORRY for $75 off. CandidCo.com slash SORRY. Code SORRY. I've been to many border towns and there is a very distinct feeling. And it's always fascinating to me when you think about these really arbitrary lines in the sand, really, and how it seems, especially now, that we're able to politicize these very incredibly human stories. And yet we don't know pretty much anything about these people in these communities. I think many of us, we know very little about Juarez, aside from what we hear in American fiction. And that, I think, leads us to think about drug cartels, right? So how much power do drug cartels actually have in Juarez? What have you found? The way I describe it is that in cities like Juarez and increasingly throughout Mexico, there are these two parallel universes that exist. And one you can see on the surface and the other you can't. Everybody knows that it exists, but nobody wants to talk about it because to talk about it openly is to ask for trouble. And it's this second universe, this invisible universe that more and more holds a grip on Mexico and holds the true power in Mexico. And this second universe is controlled by organized crime, primarily drug traffickers and major drug cartels led by names that you have heard, like Chapo Guzman, who was extradited and tried in the U.S. recently. Increasingly, it's these criminal organizations that hold the power in Mexico and that really decide the fate of the country and the people who live there. 
Ciudad Juarez lies on the front line of Mexico's war on drugs and its people have paid the price. This cemetery has doubled in size in the last decade to accommodate some of the thousands killing this city alone. These families were able to bury their loved ones. Many more simply disappeared. But I also think it's worth mentioning that it wasn't always that way. And when people first started noticing in Juarez women going missing and turning up in the desert, as Monica mentioned, brutalized, this was before cartel violence was completely endemic to Juarez. It was before the really brutal 2008 drug war kicked off and those images of people hanging from bridges and the types of narratives you mentioned American fiction that we saw in movies like Sicario were commonplace. And so this was a mystery that predated cartel violence overtaking Juarez, but also intersects with it in ways that are very interesting and that we explore in Forgotten. One of the things I found very interesting in reporting this podcast was that there was a mass grave of women discovered in 2001 in Juarez at a place called the Cotton Field. Este lunes fueron recuperados por autoridades mexicanas 20 cadáveres de fosas comunes en el Valle de Juarez. There were all kinds of mishaps at the crime scene, misplaced evidence, suspects basically pinned with the crimes within 48 hours of eight bodies being found. Is this the same mass grave that was discovered in Lote Bravo? This is a separate mass grave. So the Lote Bravo mass grave was in 1995 or 1996. This one was in 2001. And the authorities basically said case closed very, very early and in suspicious circumstances. And what that meant was that the victims were not always correctly identified. The families not only had missing daughters, but they couldn't always say with certainty whether or not their daughters had been found in this grave or not. And so one of the people who came in was an Argentine forensic anthropologist called Mercedes Doretti, who had worked a lot on exhuming bodies after the dictatorship in Argentina fell. In most of our countries, the, in, in all of our countries in Latin America, the forensic system is within the judiciary or within the police. And as, as a result, it's part of it, uh, in one way or another, part of the, the state. And families of victims do not trust them um, to do this kind of works. Her job in Juarez was basically to try and get positive identification on these women's bodies that had been left all around town. And in many cases, she found that there was no identification with the body and with families who were missing relatives locally. And this was 2001. And she would have to go several hundred miles into the interior of Mexico to get a match. And she'd never seen anything like this in her life before. But now at the border, of course, with exactly what you described, which is the magnet of immigration to the US, and then people turned around, living in precarious situations, forced to cross in even more dangerous circumstances, there are unidentified bodies all over the place and Mercedes and her team are working on reuniting those with families who may now be not just as far away as the interior of Mexico, but as far as Honduras or Guatemala or even further in some cases. You just mentioned, and we just mentioned, two mass graves, right? One in 1995 or six, and one in 2001, I think you said. Are there more? How many mass graves have been found? So over the course of the last almost 30 years, it's been hundreds of women who have succumbed to these terrible crimes, which in Juarez, they're known as femicides. And between 1996 and 2012, there were a total of five mass graves discovered in and around Juarez that contained women's bodies, or multiple women's bodies were found. We started on this podcast together, which goes right back until 1993. 
But actually, the substance of your reporting before this podcast was largely in relation to the most recent mass grave and the trial that followed, right? Correct, yes. The mass grave that was discovered in 2012, some of the victims that were found there, at this point, many of them were just broken skeletal remains. So identifying the victims was even harder in that case. One and two, trying to find out what exactly happened to these women was close to impossible because you just had bones. Había un claro repunte en los asesinatos de mujeres ocurridos en el Estado de México. And the women who were identified in that mass grave, I knew a lot of their mothers. I had been out in the streets of downtown Juarez with their mothers days after they had gone missing, posting missing flyers of their daughters, listening and witnessing their desperation and following up with them because the lack of response from the authorities that existed from the very beginning was still happening in 2009, 2010, when these women first started going missing. And so what the mothers started to do is they took it upon themselves to investigate the crimes. And they worked with another mother whose daughter had gone missing in the early 2000s. She went as far as to go to law school to be able to try and fight her daughter's case herself. And so she started helping these other mothers do their own investigation. And part of the work that they did together with other groups, they began to piece together what may have happened to their daughters. And again, it was those women who were found in this, the last mass grave, which was in 2012, in a place called Arroyo de Navajo. This is on the outskirts. I just think it helps for people to understand such a huge tragedy like this by actually understanding the individual's and the victims. So are there any other stories that you can tell that really paint this picture? One of the women whose story we feature prominently in the podcast, her name is Maria Sagrario Gonzalez Flores. And she was 17 when she went missing in April of 1998. She left that morning the way she normally did. Her shift started at 6 a.m. So she would set out for the bus stop at 4 a.m. because it was a two-hour trip to get from her home in the outskirts to the factory on the inside of the city. And that day, after that day, she was never seen again. It wasn't until two weeks later that her body was discovered completely on the opposite end of town, in the outskirts, badly decomposed. There are some heartbreaking stories of how it affected the family and the details of Sagrario and her family's journey to Juarez. She wasn't born in Juarez. She moved to Juarez with her mother and six sisters in the mid-1990s to get a job in one of these American-owned factories. And her father had, in fact, gone ahead of the family. And her mother, Paula, wrote to her husband, Jesus, and said, should we really come? Is it safe? I've heard they kill women there. And he replied saying, no, no, it's safe. You know, please come. So they came and they were literally crossing the border into the U.S. to salvage scrap from a dump to build their house with, the roof, <sighs> the pallets for the walls. Even in some cases, Sagrario was given a coat by a man who was throwing away his coat on the American side of the border. So they're living in the most abject poverty. Sagrario knows this and she originally is commuting to work with the rest of her family to the same factory job. But they find out she's under 18 and say, you can't work the night shift anymore. You have to work the day shift. 
And that means she has to go to work alone. And Paolo pleased with her and said, please, Sigoria, you know, we can survive without you taking this job. It's only two months till you're 18. And Sigoria says, no, no, I have to do this for the family. And by the way, haha, now that I've signed this new contract, I have a life insurance policy. So if anything happens to me, you guys will all be looked after. And Paolo says to us, I never know what to make of that joke. Why did she say that? Why would my daughter say that mm. to me? And then the family are left. Paola gets no justice from the authorities and she turns to her dreams in the end for answers. She has a dream of being back in their home state in Durango and Sagrario appears to her in her dream. And Paola says, my daughter, I know I'm not good enough to see your face, but please tell me who killed you. And so just the level of desperation in these lives is really profoundly moving. I thank you, Oz. Sometimes I get I get a little nervous in these things and I forget these very crucial, crucial details. And I'm glad um, that you detailed it out the way you did. I also think that there is an element of self-preservation where your body's probably not allowing you to remember the details. So hmm. it's nice that you have you have Oz that can fill it in because I think for women to hear these stories, it's devastating. Alfredo Corchado interviewed a jailed member of the cartel, and he claimed that he was at parties where the women were being sex trafficked. What do you know about this? Tell us a bit about this theory and the story behind it. Okay, well, Alfredo Corchado, he is the Mexico and the U.S.-Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. He's actually a colleague of mine who I befriended and who became somewhat of a mentor to me early on in my in my career. Alfredo covered the big presidential election in, in 2000 in Mexico, which broke 70-year one-party rule in Mexico. And so he was in D.C. And, and talking to, you know, presidents, ambassadors, very important people. And then he gets reassigned back to Mexico. But before they send him from D.C. to Mexico, his editors say, will you make this pit stop in Juarez and go after this story? Try to answer this question. What's happening to the women of Juarez and who's killing them? Many, many people had already reported on on like the what, but not many had dared to go after the who. And Alfredo, because he went into this story naively, and he was a serious and a good reporter, he kept on pushing and pushing and pushing to asking, well, who's behind the murders? Who's behind the murders? Through that pushing, he was connected to a source, a lawyer who often represented people in the Juarez underground. And when I say the Juarez underground, I mean the world of organized crime. And so it was this source that introduced him to a drug dealer in a Juarez prison. And that drug dealer claimed to have been a witness at a party where some women were brought in. And what he described was basically women who were kidnapped off the streets of Juarez, brought to these parties where drug traffickers, hitmen were present. And these women served as a form of celebration after a successful drug run. It was at these parties where these horrific things would happen to them. And after it was all over, the women would be killed and and their bodies would be dumped in these vacant lots, patches of desert, where they would later be discovered by mainly members of the public. 
And so they served this horrific, I mean, they viewed these women as objects, as completely devalued, stripped them of their humanity. And the women not only served as these grotesque trophy, they served as like a bonding ritual between these criminals that there was served to like create a pact between them and made them all complicit in these terrible crimes. And I'm going to jump in and say that you know, at this moment, Alfredo's sitting in the jail in Juarez, you know, with the a lawyer from the underworld on one side of him and sitting across from a cartel, a drug dealer who's on the run from his bosses. Right. And he's hearing this story, but he doesn't know if it's true. And he doesn't know if he's being played because he's an American or if these people have an agenda that he's not fully aware of yet. Because at this point, the FBI is still thinking that there may be an American serial killer who's crossing the border to take advantage of the world of impunity and the lack of protections of the vulnerable women in Juarez and turning it into a kind of killing field. So Alfredo told us, you know, there were all these competing theories and it was very hard to to know how to make sense of them. I will mention, though, that many years later when El Chapo was on trial in New York a couple of years ago, the testimony of one of his former henchmen was that he would celebrate successful drug runs by having young women kidnapped from the street, and he referred to them as his vitamins. Tonight, El Chapo has now been convicted on all 10 federal charges, including drug trafficking and conspiracy to murder. He will likely spend the rest of his life in American prison. So this doesn't directly corroborate what the drug dealer in the Juarez jail told Alfredo, but it does speak to a culture of total objectification. I just want to back up for a minute, and I want you to tell me about the law enforcement efforts undertaken to solve, you know, these killings. What's going on there? Well, interestingly, because Suarez is kind of in the backyard of El Paso, and because El Paso, because of trafficking, has the FBI, the DEA, there's a huge military base with military intelligence. It's kind of one of the centers in the US of law enforcement. And right across the border, there's this, you know, almost entirely lawless environment where these women are being killed. And so there are actually three attempts made by the FBI since the 1990s to figure out what's going on. One of them was led by a man called Robert Ressler, who actually coined the term serial killer and and developed the psychological profiling department at the FBI at Quantico. And he went to Juarez as a private citizen after he'd retired in the 90s in the company of Candice Scrapek because they were concerned, they, they were trying to develop this thing called the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, where they could basically look at crime scenes in the US and cross-reference the characteristics like how was the victim treated, what happened to them, were there any signatures with other crime scenes to try and 
catch serial killers, basically. And what they realized was they didn't have southern Canada and northern Mexican crime data. There was only so much utility in this database. So Ressler and Candice were there basically trying to get their hands on the files to see if there were any matches to American serial killers. Later on, Frank Evans, who's the assistant special agent in charge of the El Paso FBI office, he's running a completely different operation in Juarez, trying to identify men's bodies because he wants to get an indictment against the cartel leader for killing Americans. While he's there, he thinks, can I use this as an opportunity to test out whether the local police are reliable? So he kind of gives them this offer we'll give you the FBI's resources to help solve the murders of women, and then kind of just lets it play out to see what happens. And what happens is they say, yes, thank you so much, fantastic. The FBI takes 76 files, 34 of them have common characteristics, the local police take them back, and the state attorney general says, oh great, the, all the FBI's findings confirmed what we already thought, this man we've had in jail for the last three years is indeed responsible, and he's been paying a local gang to carry out more murders to prove his innocence. And then a, another FBI agent comes along a couple of years later and also gets involved, which ends up with him in hot water. So it's been very interesting how the US has tried to get involved and, and tried to partner with Mexican law enforcement, but it's never sort of solved the crimes. But when the FBI first started investigating, I mean, this had been going on for years, right? And yet there was right. n no no central data point for law enforcement, right? I mean, is that what you're saying? Yeah, creating the database fell to this incredible woman who Monica knew, but unfortunately has now passed away, called Esther. She wasn't an investigator. She wasn't a police officer. She was an accountant. It was her job. She was used to keeping records and keeping archives. And it was really thanks to, to her work that she was the first person who began keeping a record of the women who were being murdered simply by compiling clippings from the newspaper where she wrote editorials. And to this day, that archive is a very important resource for anyone who is looking into these murders, most especially journalists. But I mean, the police kept their own files, and those were the ones that they shared with the FBI. I mean, the way Frank Evans puts it, he describes the police investigation in Juarez as being either are you incompetent or are you implicit and corrupt? And he says, you know, you can only be mm. you can only be incompetent so many times. And what they suspected was that there was corruption and there was complicity behind these crimes. And therefore, the answer to whether or not they could create a partnership between the local and state police was a very resounding no. Allegations of police corruption are nothing new in Mexico, but it's rare to see federal officers face off against each other. In the violent border city of Ciudad Juarez, one group of police surrounds a building. A federal police commander inside is accused by some of his own officers of protecting criminals. We give our lives. Here in Juarez, we've given our lives and are giving it. They come, do dirty tricks, take money and drugs. Have any of these murders been solved? Any of them? The simple answer to that is no. The, the more serious sexual serial murders have gone unsolved. But among 
what you might classify as a femicide victim in Juarez and in Mexico, there are cases of extreme domestic violence. You could even call them copycat murders that were made to look like these serial sexual murders, but that the person responsible thought, you know, if I make it look like these other murders, maybe I won't be held responsible. And I can't say for sure if some of those murders were ever solved because there were so many of them. It's impossible to follow them all. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about what does it say about the American and the Mexican governments that hundreds of women go missing and so many of them just turn up murdered and it remains unsolved to this day. I was thinking to your question about the drug dealer and what he witnessed at these parties. I mean, these women were selected for a very particular reason. They were selected because they were deemed to be disposable. I mean, that's the most blunt and horrific way to put it. They targeted women who were poor, who couldn't defend themselves, whose families, even if they tried to defend them, they could be brushed off, they could be ignored. And that meant that they could get away with these crimes. And they were proven time and time again that they, in fact, could get away with these crimes. Well, of course, if you attack the most vulnerable, sadly, there's there's a, a good chance you're going to get away with whatever the crime is. Can you tell us a little bit about Sigario Gonzalez and her case? I mean, it seems unique only because someone was arrested and charged in her murder. Do you think that there's a relation to the other cases? So in the case of Sigario, I mentioned her mother, Paola's dream. And Paolo was saying to Sagrario in the in the dream, tell me who took you, tell me who, who took you. And in the dream, Sagrario gives Paolo a name, which is this local boy, Manuelio. In fact, he's somebody who smuggles goods and people across the border. But he's kind of become a friend of the Flores family because he's a young boy with no family of his own there. And Sagrario's mother kind of feels sorry for him and she invites him into the home and gives him water whenever he's passing by. And then in the dream, Sagrario tells Paola Manuelio was involved in this. And so Manuelio shows up at the house a couple of weeks later and says, you know, can I have my water? And Paola says, well, what did you have to do with my daughter's death? And he tried to avoid the question. And then he ultimately said, the narcos from the valley, the drug dealers, the more senior drug dealers, they took her. He asked me for water. I told him, go ahead, fill the gallon. That time again, he saw me crying and he said, you cry too much, stop crying for her. These words angered Paula, tugging at a suspicion that she already felt. I turned around and said, you know what? I'll always curse my daughter's killers because she didn't deserve to die that way. And he told me nervously, don't say that. And I said, yes, that's what I ask him all the time. I curse them. And so Paola managed to get him arrested despite being laughed out by the authorities when she tells them about her dream. And he initially tells them, yes, I was paid $500 to spot Sagrario. Fast forward, it comes to his sentencing hearing and he's changed his testimony. He said that he acted completely alone and that he was solely responsible for Sagrario's murder. Paola's son stands up and says... In that case, how many times did you stab her? How many stab wounds did you have? And this boy, Manuelio, who can't answer. 
And so Paulus says, what, I fed you, you had at my children's table, what is going on? Why don't you please tell us the truth? And he said, oh, you know, the state police told me things would be easier for me if I changed my testimony and said I acted alone. So he is in jail, and that's why your question is a complicated one about has anyone been prosecuted? Yes, there have been people prosecuted. Manuelio was one of them. He was clearly involved in Sagrario's disappearance in one way. There are other people who have been prosecuted and sent to jail who may have had no involvement whatsoever with the deaths of the women. Are the, what Paolo Flores called the authors of the crime, have they ever been successfully prosecuted? No, because they unfortunately seemingly have a lot of sway in the judiciary and the police. They're protected by the judiciary and the police. And those who have been arrested, the most well-known arrests, most of them have been exonerated and proven to be scapegoats, including an American woman who was living in Mexico at the time. women are we talking about here? That's another tricky answer. One of the reporters that we feature in the podcast, another mentor of mine, Diana Washington Valdez. Diana became obsessed with this case as a key to solving the whole. And she wants to interview the witnesses herself. A lawyer in Juarez promised to help her find them. Then, while they were meeting, he changed his mind. He said, don't touch this, don't go near it. I thought, well, okay, you don't want to be part of it. That's fine. Just draw me the map and show me where I can find the witnesses. And so he started to draw me a map of that neighborhood to indicate where I could go find people of interest. And then he tore up the paper, garbled it up and said, no, no, it's too dangerous. Just stay away from it, Diana. Between the early 90s and the early 2000s, she put the number between three and 400 women. And in fact, in her book, she has, she has a listing of names year to year, but it only goes to the early 2000s. So it doesn't include the women who I encountered in the 2010s who also went missing and were murdered then. And of course, there are the women who were found in the mass graves and there are individual cases like right. Sagrario every year. I think one of the most perverse elements of this story, though, Alyssa, you mentioned, like, why hasn't, despite the attention from the US and the Mexican government, why has nothing happened? The US ultimately has a vested interest in the situation in Juarez. Not that there's anybody in the US government who wants poor, vulnerable women to be murdered and destroyed, but rather that the reason many of those women were in Juarez in the first place is because they were working in factories which created goods for companies, American companies, to go to the American export market. Things like car seats, windscreen wipers, medical gloves, blood pressure cuffs. And that situation persists to this day. These factories are called maquiladoras. And uh, in the height of COVID, there was a big protest amongst the maquiladora workers saying, please don't make us come to work. It's killing us. They, they named the maquiladoras the maquiladoras. But the United States ambassador said to the Mexican government, we need these factories to stay open because they're creating goods that we need, medical supplies that we need during the pandemic. So that really captured the perversion of the situation. I mean, 
Do you think that the factories are run by drug cartels? A lot of these questions you can answer with a 100% degree of certainty. But no, these are foreign-owned factories. Many of them are American companies, companies that you would recognize. Boeing, Johnson & Johnson, General Electric, they have factories down there. And many, many of the employees, they have both Mexican and American employees. But they do have ties to the drug traffickers in that drugs are often smuggled in the cargo trucks that go from the factory in Juarez into, mm. into El Paso and, and into the rest of the U.S. And so there is some interaction, intermingling between the legal commerce that exists in Juarez and the illegal commerce that exists in Juarez. And I like to call them the twin engines that fuel the Juarez economy. And those Twin engines are fueled by American demand for both cheap consumer goods and illegal drugs. That's what the Juarez economy is built on, our demands in the U.S. And people are made vulnerable trying to meet those demands. In your coverage and through doing your podcast, interviewing people, trying to investigate what is going on here. What is the thing that has surprised you the most about this? Well, you know, my first impressions of Juarez were, like most other people's, probably of my generation, which was the drug war, Sicario, those right. horrific images of men hanging from bridges. And so it was very interesting for me to learn that Juarez wasn't always like this. And we had a fascinating conversation with one of the editors at El Diario, the newspaper in Juarez, who basically said, you know, this isn't the country I grew up. If you allow journalists seeking the truth to be assassinated, if you allow the judiciary and the police to be corrupted, if you allow a conflict to break out between vulnerable populations and the people who are supposed to serve and protect them, you get Juarez. And by the way, guys... Look what's happening in your country. Not to be alarmist, but these institutions that we take for granted are more fragile than we think. And for me, the most surprising thing of the podcast was how close to home it all is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's well put, Oz. And I think for me, in instead of more so than surprise, it's more how angry I've become the more I understand the forces behind this story. When I first started looking into it, I was a college student myself, and my university campus sits right across the border from Juarez, even elevated a little. And so you could stand in the library lawn and look out into the neighborhoods in Juarez where some of these women lived. And so I remember standing there and looking out in these neighborhoods and thinking, my God, had my grandparents not immigrated when they did, I could have been one of these women. And instead, here I am, safe and sound, pursuing a higher education. I have privileges that they didn't. That's a huge part of the motivation behind why I decided to, to focus my reporting on these murders and joining in on this podcast. But I didn't, at that time, I didn't understand these economic forces behind the story as well as I do now, and how much our actions in the U.S. impact other countries. Does the Mexican government feel that the U.S. government is doing enough to, to restrain demand on our side? Well, I think the Mexican government's um, 
big wish is that the U.S. Uh, was able to lower that insatiable demand, as, as Hillary Clinton put it. So the more I learn about that, I mean, the, it makes me terribly angry. And, and it, I guess maybe if I'm surprised, it's just American indifference towards what happens in other countries and really just blaming and even vilifying Mexico for its troubles when, in fact, we share a huge responsibility for what happens there. Okay, so with all of the information that you've gathered and all of your reporting, who do you think is doing the killing? From the reporting that we and so many others have done, it's clear that there are multiple culprits behind these murders, including organized crime, well, mainly organized crime. I guess that's the simplest way to put it. One of our key sources who wrote a book on this topic called The Killing Field, Harvest of Women, Diana Washington Valdez, who was Monica's mentor at the El Paso Times and, and who was an incredibly generous person on this podcast in terms of introducing us to her sources, which, by the way, is not something <laughs> all journalists want to do. <laughs> right. And uh, I was very struck by the fact that she did because it was clear to me that more than the glory of the story for herself, this was about, by any means necessary, getting the story out there. And she came to these five lines of investigation in her book, uh, one of which was that a serial killer was at work in Juarez, one of which was that uh, drug gangs were perpetuating these crimes for recreation, one of them was that the cartel were involved in the crimes and, and human trafficking. One was that rich industrialist men were engaging in the same behavior as the cartel in terms of these no-holds-barred sex parties. And the final was this copycat killers that Monica mentioned. There was a man who murdered his girlfriend in Ruidoso, New Mexico, drove her across the border with her son next to him in the car and dumped her body in Juarez, hoping that it would get lost in the mix because he knew that was the reputation of Juarez. And most true crime podcasts or detective novels or whodunits, you know, knock down one theory after another until they get to the core of culpability. And unfortunately, in our case, what's most, most likely seems to be that all of those things are true. I'm just wondering if you see the capacity to to stop these killings. Do you think there's any way to stop them? What do we have to do? Híjole. Well, as long as law and order is non-existent in Mexico, as long as the drug cartels hold the true power in Mexico, I don't see how the situation of violence, not only against women, but against everyone, every citizen in Mexico, is resolved. I mean, I've watched Juarez, much like Sandra at El Diario, the reporter who we interview, I've watched the violence in Juarez from the time I was a child to now just get worse, right. worse upon worse. I mean, mm -hmm. in 1995, when these murders, when these murders of women were in the early stage, Juarez hit a record of total annual homicides of... Was it 200 or 400 people? It was either 200 or 400 people. And in 2010, it set a new record when 3,000 people were murdered in a single year. And that wave of violence is getting perpetuated in Juarez and throughout Mexico because of organized crime and, and drug trafficking. So until you resolve the problem of organized crime in Mexico, 
I don't see how the country can progress. And that means addressing drug consumption in, in the U.S. We mentioned the manufacturing industry in Juarez being a key driver of the U.S. economy. But the other thing to bear in mind is the money, the spoils of the drug trafficking. And in 2012, Wachovia and HSBC were both implicated in a Sinaloa money laundering scandal, basically laundering money from the cartel in Mexico through the banking system. And the New York Times ran an op-ed at the time under the title, Too Big to Indict. Essentially, both banks got off right. with a small fine. It was only four years after the financial crisis. And the price of really investigating the extent of cartel money in the US banking system might have been another systemic failure, was the argument. And so, A, we're so tied into both economies, much as we might not like to acknowledge it, the legal and the illegal economy in Juarez. But B, even if that weren't the case, short of invading countries, the US used to have some kind of ability to influence, some kind of moral authority, dare I say it. Yeah. When in the US there are crimes happening against populations committed by law enforcement, which aren't properly investigated or prosecuted, what's the incentive for any other country to listen to any lecturing from the US not to behave that way at home. I mean, there was a tweet from the Chinese deputy foreign minister after Mike Pompeo was complaining about the Chinese annexation of Hong Kong, which, by the way, I, I profoundly disagree with. But the deputy foreign minister tweeted, I can't breathe. So this is the reputation the US is contending with around the world. And this is why I said that this story feels closer to home than it did when we started working on it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And also, because of that, to me, it feels even bigger. Because it's not just about, you know, solving these horrible murders. It's about power. It's about keeping the systemic thing, the machine going, right, for both countries. And it's just, it's hard to foresee how we get out of that. But I want to, I want to thank you both for keeping these women from being invisible. Maria Turrosa, tirada en una fosa. El desierto se rehusó a tragarse su rocío. What you're doing is really, really incredible, and just know that I'm, I'm here to walk by your side if there's anything you ever need. Es un dato el que no haya dato, y el mensaje es claro. En el Estado de México se pueden asesinar mujeres, y eso no importa. No importa porque no habrá alguien que de manera seria lleve una investigación y ponga en prisión a la persona que le ha quitado la vida a una mujer. Women are disposable. Around the world, men regard women as something to use and throw away, like the hundreds of women we just heard about. We are commodities to be traded and consumed. I mean, we see it in the Me Too movement, where millions of us around the world continue to share our stories of abuse. And we see it here, in the American government, our government, where the Senate refuses to pass the Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act, in part because it would prevent convicted domestic abusers from buying guns. That's how disposable women are here that our government sides with domestic abusers and their guns against their victims. It's got to stop. Here and abroad, everywhere, women matter. 
women are not disposable. But every Republican in the Senate who is not pushing for this bill to hit the floor, you can bet they sure are. Call them. Let them know. It matters now more than ever. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 